This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of antiwar.com, author of the book, Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right. Well, I'm here on location in San Diego. And I'm with Larry Bowen and Joe Metters. And uh, Joe, we've spoken before on the phone. Uh, Very happy to meet you guys here in person. We've had a great time. Went to dinner last night and got to hang out and become friends here a little bit. Uh, both of these men are survivors of the Israeli attack on the USS Liberty, June 8th, 1967. And um, I want to give thanks to uh, Daryl Cooper for helping arrange this too, so this could happen today. So um, I guess I want to start with the bottom line, the number of KIA and wounded, and, and, and then we'll get into the story of how events you know, started uh, unfolding that morning and, and try to pick up the, the gory details here. Um, so I guess first of all, name, rank, serial number, what were you guys doing? You were NSA and you were in Navy, right? Right. So go ahead and just talk about your... Uh, my, mine was still Navy. I was a cryptologic technician, radioman, second class petty officer. And, uh, you know, my, my primary duties were to collect international Morse code, copy it, and then um, it would be processed and sent back to NSA for further processing. Um, So that morning, the morning of the attack, I had a day watch and I was sitting in a position uh, copying code um, and I found out later that morning that what I was copying was pretty significant, that they uh, they were talking about you know, a major offensive against a target. Didn't identify the target, but you know, my, uh, my buddy Bob Eisenberg told me at lunchtime that uh, it, was, it was big. Somebody was really going to get their butt kicked. Um, and of course, I don't know if he knew that it was us. He didn't say it. Um, but then we were outside of the you know, secure spaces suit. We learned to talk around uh, what uh, what's going on, just so that you can um, you know communicate like we're communicating now. Right. So, so I haven't really told you what I was copying or anything else, but um, suffice it to say that it was uh, it was important. Yeah, sounds like it. 
All right, now, and, and that's Larry. So go ahead, Joe. What were you doing on the boat that morning? My uh, rank was a signalman. I was responsible for visual communications between ships like flag hoist and, and flashing light in the semaphore. Mm -hmm. I had just gotten out of A school, signalman A school in Newport, Rhode Island, and I got uh, assigned to the USS Liberty, which seems independently so. I couldn't figure out why they would have me as signalman on, on the, uh, the ship. But. Uh, and how old were you guys at this time? I was 19. You were 19. I was 21. 21. Uh -huh. yeah. And I'm sorry, why was it confusing that they had you being the signalman that day? Because we steamed independently. We, oh, didn't, we didn't steam oh, in, in company with other ships. So I stood quartermaster watches, which I got very adept at, but uh, kind of. Not not what I was born to do, as far as the Navy was concerned. Mm -hmm. But then that means that the American flag flying on the ship that morning was your responsibility? That was virtually the only job I had to do, except for uh, lookout watches, mm -hmm. was to make sure that the, at the appropriate times the flag was flying. And now, do I have it right from this new documentary, Sacrificing Liberty from True News? I believe they say that you started out with a five by eight foot flag. Yes, the, the regular steaming ensign we called it. Mm -hmm. It was we had uh, we normally went out at sea and no, no ships around. We didn't fly the flag because it would just be destroyed by the uh, by the the wind and the mm -hmm. the, uh, the stack blowing all of its uh, carbon out. Mm -hmm. But then when we got close to land or had ships in the area, we would raise the flag. I got you. So. For those of us who aren't Navy sailors, uh, how far away would another ship uh, have to be to be too far away to identify that flag by sight, do you think? Uh, never mind binoculars and everything, but just by naked eye, how far away could you recognize that as an American flag, do you think? Well, about, I'd say about seven or eight miles. Seven or eight miles. And so if you're talking about a slow flying reconnaissance plane, for example, that was buzzing right by the ship. Is there any way in the world they could mistake that flag for any other thing, Joe? One of the uh, aircraft flew so low, it rattled our deck plane. So we could see and uh, see that the, the, the aircraft quite clearly, the pilots, and uh, we knew from the intercepts that they were reporting back to their ship, back to their headquarters, that we were uh, an American ship. Mm -hmm and flying an American flag. But let me make a comment about uh, the focus on flying the American flag. That That's, you know, any, any ship can fly an American flag if they right. want to. Mm -hmm. And that is not uh, a specific indicator of the nationality of the ship. You had things like uh, the color of the ship, the length of the ship, the uh, uh, structure of the superstructure mm -hmm. and, and all that stuff to consider. The flag, the, there's the flag. lighting on it too. Yeah, right? there's lighting. There's standard U.S. Navy markings. Mm -hmm. And so, where it says USS Liberty, that's on the stern? That's on the stern. It just said Liberty, it didn't say USS Liberty. Mm -hmm. But that, that, would, that was, was the standard writing. But an experienced you know, Navy or, or uh, Air Force would be able to recognize those letters as a, that's American lettering on an American boat. We're talking broad daylight on a bright sunny morning, exactly. right? Oh, exactly. absolutely. Mm -hmm. yep. Not a cloud in the sky. Mm -hmm. So 
Now, in the documentary, they say that you guys saw the Israelis. Of course, you're rooting for the Israelis. It's the middle of the 1967 six-day war here. And so you guys are waving at them and saying, hey, look, it's our Israeli friends. How are you guys doing? Because they're flying surveillance flights over the Liberty for how long that morning? How many planes came to check you guys out? About a, uh, I'd say about a dozen times, really. But a dozen yeah. times? And they would circle the ship and, like I say, we'd wave to the pilots. And did that seem odd, though, that they kept coming back and back and different kinds of planes and everything? It wasn't uncommon that we would have aircraft come out from the, uh, you know, from the west coast of Africa, where we normally steamed up and down during mm -hmm. that, uh, that trip anyway. It was, it was common for a reconnaissance aircraft to come out and check us out, so we didn't think anything about it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then... Unless I'm leaving anything out, we go ahead now to the first indications of trouble here that morning. They just, a fighter jet just opened fire, strafing the ship, is that right? Yeah, I was on the pilot house. We had just secured from a general quarters drill. It was a little after two o'clock in the afternoon. And Lloyd Painter was the uh, officer at the deck and he was watching the surface search radar. And uh, he noted on the radar some very high speed we, he assumed were aircraft coming, approaching us, uh, flying up our starboard side. And so we all uh, ran up to the signal bridge. You know, we thought it would just be another circling of the ship. But uh, when the aircraft got it's a little ahead of us, they turned left immediately to uh, what we would think was another circling of the ship, but they got straight in and directly in front of us, turned immediately left and began strafing. <laughs> And then we all went down to the pilot house. And uh, yeah, so at that point, the uh, the captain's on the microphone giving y'all instructions, telling y'all, you know, what are we supposed to do? I guess the ship is only armed with a couple of light machine guns. Is that four, correct? Four fifty caliber machine guns. And so somebody jumps on the, the guns and starts shooting. No. No. Well, there's. Uh, one of the uh, guys in the uh, had a, the headquarters, or this, excuse me, the uh, uh, general quarters station was at Mount 51, which was on the starboard side up on a forecastle, mm. and uh, he was on a 50 caliber machine gun, and he fired one bullet at the attacking air, attacking torpedo boats actually. Oh, okay. Because I don't think we fired at the at the aircraft. They were moving too fast. Right. But he fired one bullet, and the, the Israeli says that removed all doubt that we were in an enemy ship. Uh huh. Here we are after going uh, an un ungodly barrage from attacking jets right. without firing a single shot at them, and then torpedo boats appear, and we fired one shot, and poof, they were you know they were they were the enemy. Yeah, they're just making up excuses after the fact at that point because. Isn't it right, Larry, that the, the torpedo boats didn't even approach until the planes had already been tacking for that's, quite a that's while? Correct. How, yes. how long had the, the air attack been going on before the uh, torpedo boats? Twenty-five to thirty minutes. Yeah. Um, and it was a two-prong kind of attack. They they did the strafing, uh, several passes on the you know firing fifty caliber you know armor-piercing shells and uh, and rockets at the at the ship. So. The uh, the air attack, and and later the uh, motor torpedo boat attack, 
ended up with, we had 821 rocket-sized holes in, in the ship's hull yeah. um, and superstructure. Um, so, but the, um, the torpedo boats came, you know, pretty much after the air attack. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to change the subject. We'll, we'll pick it back up at the torpedoes for a second, but before we started recording, Joe, you mentioned how, you know, of course, virtually all veterans who, you know, go through actual combat have some kind of PTSD from this thing. But at least, you know, for these other guys, they can go through some therapy, some kind of thing, find a way to put it behind them. But because you guys' story is suppressed, and you guys have to dedicate your lives to being full-time activists to try to tell the truth about this story, to let the people of this country even know that this happened, that you can't ever put it behind you. I can tell when he's talking, this is really hard for you still, isn't it? Yeah, very hard. Yeah. Uh, it's an incredible amount of violence, and seeing in the documentary the way they show a lot of the bullet holes and the damage, and I guess some kind of dramatization of what it was like at the time. Um, but 34 dead, um, that's not dying in their sleep. That's torn apart by these bullets coming in at this high speed, right? The, like and one thing, when, when, I, when I do my talks, and I haven't done very many recently, but when I do them, normally you'd write out your notes, you know, whether they're bullet or, uh, or written out speech that you give. I can't do that. I have to get up there and just give it a, 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 a virtually off-the-cuff comments about the attack mm-hmm. because it's, it's always constantly with me. Yeah. And if I had to write it down, it's, uh, I just have to be reliving it in, in detail. And that's, uh, that's, uh, that affects me. Yeah. And have you guys had therapy and, and had professional help with yeah, I'm, I'm still under therapy for PTSD. Yeah. Um, see, I was, I was a CT, so as a communications technician, I, uh, I had top secret clearance and, and knew enough that, you know, when they told us never to speak of it um, or we'd be fined or imprisoned or both, the, uh, you know, it was like normal for me to, to just clam up and not say anything. Mm-hmm. And then after I retired from the Navy in 1986, I uh, went to work as a defense contractor, still needing my clearances. And uh, so again, I, I suppressed all of the, the trauma. I mean, I was, I was having nightmares and, and wake up, you know, with cold sweats and, and just, my wife knew that there was something wrong, but she didn't quite understand what, uh, what I was going through until that uh, docu-series by True News. Mm-hmm. When, uh, when she saw that, it, it kind of opened her eyes to, uh, you know, the trauma that, uh, that we experienced. And um, so, but I've been going through therapy now for about four or five years because I, I didn't open up until but, after, after I retired. Wow, so it wasn't even until 
what, 2016 or 17 or something? When you first found uh, 2016. Yeah. I uh, reconnected with Ron Kukul. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, we started talking about, you know, the ship and the Liberty Veterans Association and, and getting actively involved. And uh, it helped me so that I can talk to you now without breaking down. I, um, when I first started therapy, I, you know, I, I couldn't talk about it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and there's still parts of the attack that are blank for me. Um, I, I was as a secondary or maybe as the third assignment I had during the, the attack, I was uh, detailed back to the fantail as a phone talker because our phone talker, Larry Weaver, had been hit by a rocket and tore him up pretty bad. So I got detailed to go back there and be the phone talker. And when I saw the torpedo boats coming back for the second time, I, um, I had to relay that to the bridge, but I, that's, then there's a part of that that's just blank for me. I don't know if they were still firing at us um, or if they were just coming back not to offer assistance, but um, I, I'm not sure what their, their purpose was. Yeah. Um, but I, I can't recall what, uh, what I was doing back there other than trying to hide behind this wench that we use for, uh, you know, the anchor, mm-hmm. and, uh, but again, the, uh, the therapy has helped me to, to be able to discuss those kinds of things now without, uh, without breaking down. So, so that's a good thing. Plus I'm on medication. Yeah. So. No, that is a good thing. It's a tragedy. It took 50 years. 50 years for you to, 49, to, to be able to, to take that step. You know, I'm really glad it's helping you. Is that the same for you, Joe? That yeah. You got a good uh, counselor here? I uh, started talking about the Liberty when I read Jim Ennis's book. Mm-hmm. And it was an interesting the way I, I found out about it. My wife is a voracious reader and she went into a Barnes & Noble looking for a specific book. And so she went up to the desk and asked the... Uh, the clerk to uh, look it up on her computer to find out if they have it. And uh, as luck would have it, instead of her book, Jim Ennis's book appeared. Hmm. So she, she bought that book and gave it to me and I, I read it in one sitting. And what year is this? This was... 79. 79. Mm-hmm. And uh, I read it in one sitting and uh, I wouldn't, wouldn't speak to anybody for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. And I haven't, I haven't, to be honest, I haven't picked it up since. Yeah, man, that must have been tough. Um, well, um, so, I mean, I don't know, maybe I would like to think that doing the activism that you do and telling the truth about it and trying to bring the story to light is helpful, but I guess you're saying it's actually really hurtful, too. It's really makes it, is, it difficult. It's, it's, it's a brick wall. When I went to, a, I was, after about 35 years, I finally went to the vet center to ask for some counseling, and they... They wouldn't give me uh, group counseling. They went had me individually with the uh, sociologist, 
and uh, it just turned into a, instead of you know describing the attack and what I was feeling at the time, it turned into a bit session about how my members of Congress have, have treated us for uh, at the time for past forty five years. Yeah, and uh, it it helped me then, but. After I got out of the session, I went back to trying to interface with these members of Congress and the silence that we received from them. Ah, I mean, that must be so difficult. They're just, I mean, they're Congress, what can you say, they're the worst. And, I mean, you get any encouragement? I, we talked a little bit last night about Devin Nunes cared a little bit. He was one member of the House who was willing to stick up for you guys. Gave an award to one of your buddies, right? Yeah, he gave a, a, a silver star to a Terry Halbardier. He was the ET who um, put together the antenna that we finally got out uh, uh, our SOS to uh, the Sixth Fleet. Mm -hmm. um, and I know James Trafficant used to stuck up for you guys back yeah, when. Was there anybody else really in Congress? No. Who has your back this whole no. time? No. As a matter of speaking to members of Congress, uh, before the blood on the deck was dry, we had uh, senators from New York City uh, apologizing for the Israeli mistaken attack on the Liberty. <laughs> before one word of any testimony was taken, they just assumed that uh, there was uh, a uh, mistaken attack and uh, got up in the in Congress to uh, to uh, apologize for Israel. I guess that was before they got the memo that they just shouldn't mention it at all. That yeah, we're just going to put this in the memory hole. They don't talk about it mm -hmm. now. That's just amazing. I, I told you guys when we were talking last night, I hadn't heard about the USS Liberty until I was in my, probably I think, mid-20s, 24, 25, right at the right when the, the Israelis were helping the lies into the Iraq war and I was starting to learn a lot more about America and Israel's relationship and somebody brought, haven't you ever heard of this? <laughs> Never heard of this. Yep. It's, it's a huge event, just incredible. The, the, um, the suppression of the history of it is, it's a story almost as remarkable as the event itself that they're able in this society, in the USA, the land of the First Amendment and all of these things, the, the very kind of, the, the notion of free speech, First Amendment notwithstanding, but the, the value that the American society has always held in free exchange of ideas and telling the truth in the news and digging into revisionist history and retelling old stories in new ways and all these things, but the USS Liberty, dead silence. It's just incredible. Yeah, there was a time when we would held a, hold a uh, annual memorial service at either the uh, site of the mass grave in Arlington National Cemetery or uh, lately at the uh, Navy Memorial in, in Washington. Every, every year we would invite members of Congress to attend and none of them, none of them attended. Incredible. I remember, I remember one time, sticks in my mind, uh, we were having a memorial service in uh, at the mass grave, and right after the memorials, we we invited the Navy to participate. And so, right after the the uh, memorial was was completed, the uh, the chaplain showed up from the Navy, and I thought, uh, how ironic 
that they showed up at, at the end of the memorial service. Yeah. This reminds me of the uh, 16 hours it took them to uh, to uh, on rendezvous with us yeah. after the attack. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. I'll make a note of the 16 hours. So let's talk about the, back to the attack here. You guys say the planes were essentially machine gunning and napalming the ship for about 25 minutes. Yeah, it was a well-coordinated attack. They started by jamming our radios on both U.S. Navy and, and uh, U.S. Navy Tactical and International Maritime Distress Frequencies. They used unmarked aircraft. They uh, initiated the attack with the high-speed Mirage aircraft that took out every gun tub, had rockets in it, and every gun tub and every antenna mount mm -hmm. to remove any defensive or communications capabilities we had. Then they brought in the slower Mystere aircraft to uh, napalm us. So just let me stop you right there. This is all those surveillance flights that have been going on in the in the morning there. Apparently, they did a really good job of planning this thing back at headquarters. That we're gonna oh, identify all their little guns and every little different antenna, and you're gonna hit them here, 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 and here. Very well planned. It, it's hard to reconcile that with any spin that this was some kind of accident when they were being that careful and picking the individual small targets on the ship itself. Which is different than just, well, they tried to sink it, right? Like the mm -hmm. first thing, as you're saying, the first thing they did was very specifically jam all your signals and, in fact, destroy as much of your radio equipment as they could. Yeah, the, uh, the attack was very well coordinated. And uh, the Israelis claimed that uh, the attacking aircraft circled the ship a few times at low and slow speeds to uh, on identification runs well. We know for a fact, because we were there watching them, that they never circled the ship. And uh, I don't think anybody would claim that uh, uh, a jet aircraft could fly over the ship at low altitude and nobody hear it. Nobody would see it. Sure. So they're definitely lying about that news for only one thing. Hey, y'all, the audiobook of my book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, is finally done. Yes, of course, read by me. It's available at Audible, Amazon, Apple Books, and soon on Google Play and whatever other options there are out there. It's my history of America's war on terrorism from 1979 through today. Give it a listen and see if you agree. It's time to just come home. Enough already. Time to end the war on terrorism. The audiobook. Hey guys, I've had a lot of great webmasters over the years. But the team at ExpandDesigns.com have by far been the most competent and reliable. Harley Abbott and his team have made great sites for the show and the Institute, and they keep them running well, suggesting and making improvements all along. Make a deal with ExpandDesigns.com for your new business or news site. They will take care of you. Use the promo code SCOTT and save $500. That's ExpandDesigns.com. Hey guys, Scott Horton here for Listen and Think Libertarian Audiobooks. As you may know, the audiobook of my new book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, is finally out. It's co-produced by our longtime friends at Listen and Think Libertarian Audiobooks. For many years now, Derek Sheriff over there at Listen and Think has offered lifetime subscriptions to anyone who donates $100 or more to The Scott Horton Show at scotthorton.org donate or to the Libertarian Institute at libertarianinstitute.org slash donate. And they've got a bunch of great titles, including Inside Syria by the late, great Reese Ehrlich. 
That's listenandthink.com. Well, and as Larry was saying, they saw him coming in on the radar. Uh-oh, somebody's coming in hot here. These aren't those earlier surveillance planes flying slow. Somebody's coming in fast, and then the next thing you know, there's machine gun fire. So there's yeah. no time for a slow circle there. It doesn't sound like in your, no. in your story, Larry. Um, all right, so now the torpedo boats show up, and I'm no Navy guy. I was surprised to hear in the documentary here... I don't know if I already knew this. I'd forgotten that five torpedoes were fired in total. Yes. But four of them failed to hit the ship. Now, if I'm shooting a BB gun at the side of a barn, I ought to be able to hit it. So can you guys explain to me how, how four out of five torpedoes missed that giant steel ship? I mean, how evasive of maneuvers could they have possibly been engaged in to dodge those torpedoes? How does that happen? No, they probably weren't very, very well practiced in the launching torpedoes, but uh, one of the things that I'd like to, uh, yesterday Larry was in the uh, interview with, uh, with Jocko, mm-hmm. he mentioned the fact that in the research spaces, the uh, CTs stayed down there. After the, I'm sorry, the CTs. The CTs were down in the. Uh, What's the CT? Communications technicians. Oh, gotcha. They were the spies on the ship. Right, right. In the in their research spaces, call them research spaces. Um, after the torpedo attack started, the word was passed to stand by for torpedo attack, starboard side. Mm-hmm. Now these CTs were below the water level, and and they stayed there, knowing that a torpedo was headed toward them. And I'd just like to acknowledge to Larry how, how proud I am that, that those guys stayed at their posts, even knowing that they were in, uh, in mortal danger. Yeah. Uh, and that they were, again, 34 killed. Seems like a miracle that it was less than that, or uh, it wasn't more than that. Um, but now, uh, okay, so on the torpedoes, um, the, uh, I guess I'm to understand that the boat would have been sunk just by the one torpedo, other than just the sheer luck that it slammed straight into an I-beam that served as a shield essentially and made the damage much less worse than it otherwise would have been. Is that correct? Yeah, the, uh, the, the five torpedoes that they admit to firing, uh, four of them missed and one hit the, the I-beam. And uh, it should be noted that uh, while in one version of the Israeli uh, claim of what happened during the attack, they claim they mistook us for the El Khazir, which was a, an Egyptian tramp steamer, mm-hmm. uh, half our size, black hulled, rusted out, chained to a pier in Alexandria at the time. But uh, forensic analysis of the torpedo hit mm-hmm. tells us that those torpedoes were set to run at a depth they would allow, or that have the torpedo run completely under the El Khazir without his striking it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and we'll get back to all the different wild and varied and changing excuses for this attack here in a little bit. But now, um, and I'm so sorry to say, I meant to get to this, and I did not get to watch the whole new documentary. I've, I've seen documentaries about it in the past. The Al Jazeera one has some great stuff where they have the audio of the fighter pilot saying, sir, this is definitely American ship. You sure you want me to fire on it? And headquarters says, you heard me, follow your orders and hit the ship. Um, 
but I did not get to see the second two parts of the new documentary. It's Sacrificing Liberty. Uh, the Don't feel bad. I, I, haven't, I haven't watched it all either. Yeah. Well, we all need to get on that. But now, so I didn't get to see if they addressed this, but I remember this from either talking to you before or from talking to Ron Kukal, that y'all deployed lifeboats into the water and started evacuating guys into the lifeboats. And no, we, did, we didn't. The lifeboats weren't manned. Oh, they weren't? They were, they were empty. Oh, I see. But they just strafed them before yeah. you guys could get in. The, exactly. We had uh, eyewitness testimony before the U.S. Navy Court of Inquiry where uh, Lloyd Painter, the officer of the deck, uh, witnessed the machine gunning of the life rafts. Mm -hmm. And uh, he testified to that fact during his testimony before the, the U.S. Navy Court of Inquiry. But uh, his testimony has been removed from the record. Mm -hmm. not, not redacted. I guess I had misunderstood that. I thought that they, you already had sailors in those life rafts when they were being stripped. They strafed the life rafts so no one could use them. Yeah. The, the, uh, the same the, difference. They the, wanted you to go down with the ship, not with yeah, the raft. The, the, <laughs> right. the war crime is removing any chance of survival should we have sunk. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a war crime that the uh, U.S. government has allowed to, con to uh, be committed with impunity. Right. And now, uh, you guys told me too last night that um, maybe Phil mentioned this, that once the ship is disabled, even your enemy, even if they still thought you were the terrible Egyptians that they were at war with, once they had disabled the ship, they were obligated to come and rescue you guys. Under the law of the sea and the laws of war and all of that, they can't let you drown. They have to come and save you, right? That's, that's right. But they didn't do that. No, they left the sea and came back about an hour later, probably... Uh, hoping that we would already been been sunk, but uh, they came back about an hour later with an offer of uh, assistance. Of course, we thought the attack was still on, and thought it was just a ruse to get uh, access to the ship. So uh, uh, Captain McGonagall said no, in not so uh, polite terms. Yeah. So now, the obvious question here: I'm sure everyone's wondering as they listen to this, where the hell's the rest of the U.S. Navy during this? The Sixth Fleet was um, roughly 500 miles away, um, but they did, you know, once they got our SOS on the USS Saratoga, they, they scrambled jets to come to our aid. Um, and before those jets got over the horizon, Robert McNamara, Secretary of Defense, recalled, you know, he called, you know, on a... Highcom, I guess it was, or uh, it was a telephone call. Yeah, it was a telephone talk, and and he called and, and told him, you know, bring those bring those jets back. And I didn't say why. He just said, recall those jets. Um, so in other words, I mean, am I right then that that means that the Israelis were already on the phone with Washington D.C. saying we tried to sink your battleship here, and so. Or we're in the middle of trying to sink it, so don't go rescue your guys? I mean, what could possibly be the explanation for his call at that time? We didn't know. We didn't report to the Sixth Fleet who we were going to be under attack by. Right. right. So the assumption should yeah. have been that's the Egyptians. we got to go exactly. save our guys from the Egyptians. Exactly. And, and there's yeah. no other reason to think. Now, do we, is there any other indication that we know of from Matt Namara's side of the story of... What he was doing there? Does he have an official excuse for that? According to Larry Geis, who was the commander of Carrier Division Four, I think it was, 
he took the call from LBJ and McNamara, mm -hmm. and it was relayed through uh, Morocco, and we've been in contact with uh, a guy named Tony Hart who was stationed there and actually handled the phone call, and he listened to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, LBJ said he didn't care if uh, the ship sunk. Uh, the uh, he was, his concern was for the uh, the uh, uh, well-being of the Israelis. Yeah, the only thing that um, came out during I don't know the course of the investigations um, is that there was thought that because the Sixth Fleet had been conducting nuclear drills. Um, earlier in the day that possibly McNamara thought that the aircraft were nuclear armed. So when they got the, the notification to recall the first wave of jets, the, uh, the carriers, both the Saratoga and the America, ended up reconfiguring their jets to you know, conventional weapon, weapons and they relaunched a second wave. Mm -hmm. um, and that's when McNamara got it back on the phone and said, you know, I told you to recall those jets. And that's when Admiral Geis said, I want it from a higher authority. And that's when Johnson got on, like Joe was saying, and uh, said, I don't care if the boat sinks and everybody on board goes to the bottom of the med, I'm not going to embarrass an ally. And I'm, I'm sorry, that, let me just make sure I understand it. You're saying that they kind of have a plausible excuse for for turning the planes back the first time they thought they might have been armed with nukes, but then yep. they launched planes that they knew for certain were armed only with conventional yes. weapons. Yes. And then that was when the president himself intervened and yes. said, you heard me. Yes. And this is while you guys are being attacked by the planes still? At yes. the same time frame? Yes. yes. Yeah. This is before the, the uh, torpedo boats. If uh, And I think Joe mentioned it yesterday during our interview that... Uh, if the jets had been allowed to proceed and come to our aid, the torpedo boats never would have gotten there to attack us because the jets would have been able to turn them back. Um, and that would have saved 25 guys' lives. Without, when, when the torpedo hit in the communication spaces, we lost 25 sailors. Uh, yeah, I was just wondering how fast did those planes fly again? You know, they're 500 miles away. They could have made it in less than an hour. Yeah. Even if they had to go on afterburners all the way, and they were dry, you know, no, they ran out of, could almost run out of fuel by the time they got there. Uh, a, they would be, they would have driven off the uh, the aggressors, and if they did run out of fuel, uh, they could fly to uh, an Israeli air base and refuel. Yeah. If they wouldn't get shot out of the sky yeah. at that point, right? Yeah. <laughs> For coming to y'all's aid. Oh, man. But we, it should be noted that uh, the radiomen on the, in the Sixth Fleet were listening to our calls for help knowing that those aircraft had been recalled. Yeah. And that had to affect them. Yeah. Have they talked about that much? I, you, you have testimony from the guy who fielded the phone call here. But was it... Because you're right, they must have been all sitting there cringing to death. Yes, we, we've, we've been in contact with some uh, radio men from the uh, various ships, mm -hmm. and they said that uh, you know it, it really affected them. Yeah, man, this is such an unbelievable story. Now, um, well, I, I, I want to talk about the motive, but I want to make sure that I'm not uh, missing too much of 
the actual story of the battle itself, such as it was for the massacre. Um, one of the things that I learned, and we don't have to go into this, guys, if you don't want to, I mean that. Um, but one of the things that they really talk about in the documentary is the scene in the med bay and in, I guess, the mess hall afterwards, which was being you know, shifted into a temporary med bay. Um, again, these guys weren't dying in their sleep. These guys were being torn to bits and, and uh, dying right there in front of you guys trying to save them and all of that. I mean, can you describe that scene, the chaos on the ship after the attack finally ended? The, uh, the Mestex was made into a, uh, a dispensary with, um, we put, took mattresses off our, our bunks, put them on the mess tables, and then put the seriously wounded uh, shipmates on, you know, makeshift beds uh, out on the Mestex. The, uh, the carnage was just, Unbelievable. There were people there with missing body parts. There were people there with shrapnel wounds that, I mean, looked like they'd been through a meat cutter. Um, and uh, I remember one of one of the fellows had his his head split open where you could actually see the the gray matter of his his brain. Um, and I think he also had a thumb missing or something. And uh, he asked Phil Turney to, to find his thumb. I mean, and of course Phil couldn't. I mean, he had no idea where, where to even start to look. But, um, you know, here, here's a guy that's got, you know, his, his whole forehead wide open and he's more worried about his thumb. And during the night, um, those of us that, that could walk, walk through those spaces there on the mess decks, trying to comfort the, the guys that were uh, laying there and in pain. Um, and we only had one, uh, one doctor on board, Lieutenant uh, Pfeiffer. And uh, then we had two corpsmen. And I mean, they, they had their work cut out for them because it, it had 70% of the crew was either killed or injured. Mm -hmm. um, oh, 70% killed or injured. Yep, 70%. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there were 34 killed and 174 wounded out of a complement of 294. Mm -hmm. So um, there was... There were other places that we had injured, you know, other than just on the mess decks because there just wasn't enough room. Um, yeah, and uh, I'm sorry, I want to go back one step to, uh, you mentioned, I think, Joe, the story of the guy who, and this is, whenever I interview Ray McGovern about this story, he always loves to tell the story of the hero who requested permission from the captain to risk his neck under heavy fire to go and reconnect at a broken antenna and make the antenna work so they could send the SOS. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it was Terry Helbardier, who was, a, uh, I think, a third-class uh, ET. And uh, he knew of, a, uh, of an antenna that had been uh, what we call surveyed 
It means it was it wasn't working, mm-hmm. and uh, he he uh, got that antenna up and working again, and, uh, and that was the only antenna that was working on a frequency that uh, mm-hmm. that he he could we could call call out to, and that's how we got our SOS message out to uh, out to the sixth fleet. So Lyndon Johnson himself calls off the air support. But then these ships, you say, if they're 500 miles away, do they at least start steaming towards you to rescue you the next day? Or who comes to your rescue finally? Uh, it was 16 hours later, the USS Massey and USS Davis came out of the morning fog and, uh, and rendezvoused with us. And then we saw the air- aircraft carriers and uh, the uh, cruisers that were in the Sixth Fleet. They came to our assistance and then not, uh, not in time. Yeah, definitely not. So, and then I guess as soon as they rescue you, some admiral tells you, you all better keep your mouth shut and never talk about this ever again, like immediately, right? And you guys just, you don't even have a chance to complain where the hell were you guys while we were getting shot because you're already sworn to secrecy before you can even say that, right? That's right. right. Ad- admiral Kidd was, uh, came on board and he took his uh, admiral stars off and says, okay, tell me what happened. And so the guys. Wait, 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 what does that mean? He took his Admiral stars off before he asked. He uh, just he uh, said, "I'm just one of you guys right. now." In other words, this is between you and me, yeah, Joe. Just uh, talk to me straight, kind right, of thing, huh? Right. So uh, the guys told him, guys told him exactly what happened, and uh, so after they did, he put his he put his uh, stars back on and says, "Okay, I'm the Admiral now. You're the seaman. You're not to talk about this to anybody. Not your wife. Not your." Uh, girlfriend, not your family, not your friends, nobody. Not each other. Not each other. No. During uh, for the rest of your life, you're not to say anything, or we will come after you, and you'll spend some time in jail. And you're on the deck of the Liberty still while he's reading you this right act, yeah. or, or the, yeah. you're already on his ship? No, you're still, still on the Liberty when he's telling us. We're on the Liberty. Yeah. Unbelievable. What a story. This is just okay. Now. I mean, I almost don't even want to spend time on the Israeli shoddy excuses here. Um, let's hold that for a second. Let's talk about, and I guess this is speculation, um, but can we talk about what you guys think is the most probable motive, or are there a few different choices of, of what are, I've heard different versions of what was the purpose of this vicious assault on an allied ship? You know, just before we came in here to record, we were talking to the nice lady out front, and I told her, you want to hear a crazy story? These guys were sailors on a ship that was attacked by Israel. And she said, what? But we're best friends. Yeah. They always have our back. And I said, well, it's the other way around. We always have theirs, but they ain't necessarily the best friends of ours. But she just was so amazed to hear that. First time in her life, guarantee she ever heard of the USS Liberty. Yeah. But that sounds crazy. That sounds like the Canadians attacking us or the British. Why would our friends, in fact, this little country that is so dependent on American goodwill, under what crazy idea would they think that this was a risk worth taking to try to kill you guys? What do you think? Well, let me say at the outset that uh, nobody in the official Washington has bothered to ask the Israelis why they attacked. But the one, the one reason that has garnered some support is the fact that the Israelis 
delayed the invasion of the Golan Heights for a day mm -hmm. while we were there. Mm -hmm. And uh, thinking that they could, you know, keep the U.S. government from finding out uh, about the attack on the Golan Heights until it was uh, a fait accompli. Mm -hmm. and, uh, the fear being that the Americans would pick up the phone and say, no, 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 that's too far, don't yeah, take the right. But those people who, uh, who support that theory are apparently ignorant of the fact that uh, we had an embassy in, in uh, Tel Aviv. And undoubtedly there were uh, CIA and NSA guys there listening to the, uh, to the uh, Israeli communications. So th why didn't they attack the, uh, the American embassy there? Mm -hmm. um, um, I mean, that might have been a, a bit more of a problem, but it's a good point, though, that it would have been redundant information as far as, you know, D.C. is concerned. They would have already known anything that they could have learned from you guys about that. That's right. I guess. But now, so one theory that I had heard before was that they had rounded up all of these Egyptian prisoners and they had either massacred them or they were about to massacre them in the Sinai and that they were worried that you guys would find out about that. Was, that's one, that's one theory. Mm -hmm. Um... And then I guess the most severe one of all is that they were hoping to sink the ship to the bottom and then they were going to blame it on Egypt and hope to provoke the United States into going to war against Nasser's Egypt. Is that right? That's correct. And I think that's the most prevailing theory um, because the United States had already activated or you know put on alert their uh, nuclear forces, strategic Air Forces, um, and of course the Sixth Fleet was was there and, and ready to go in and uh, and launch a major attack against Egypt because, like you said, what, that's who we thought was doing the attacking. The uh, the aircraft that came out for the attack were all unmarked, mm -hmm. um, so you know again. It was it was a very um, thought out, planned attack. It wasn't something that was just oh, mistaken identity, and we'll go out with our you know Sar David aircraft and, and blow it out of the water. They didn't they didn't want us to be able to you know identify them, uh, so they were using unmarked aircraft. The only the only time that that changed was when the torpedo boats came on the scene mm -hmm. and they were flying the Star of David. I see. So, uh, yeah, if, you, if you just look at the, uh, the tactics they used for the attack, initiate by jamming our radios, use unmarked aircraft, uh, you send in torpedo boats with, and fire five torpedoes ostensibly to, a, to a strike us five times, only once, thankfully. Machine gun life wraps in the water and and followed by uh, Gila-born assault troops to uh, uh, undoubtedly to uh, try to rappel down to the uh, ship mm -hmm. and, uh, and uh, kill all the survivors. That would, that uh, leads to a conclusion that their intent was to sink the ship and kill any survivors mm -hmm. and then undoubtedly blame it on the Egyptians. Which they would have gotten away with, because yeah. who's going to be around to tell any other story than that? But we survived, and uh, we're telling the story. Right. And it, it, what effect has that had on, uh, on uh, the Israeli policies? 
Oh, I think probably nothing. Uh, however, it's uh, extremely enlightening for the American citizens who get to learn this story, and for the Navy sailors who get to hear this story. Uh, you know, you guys mistake an assumption that morning that, oh, look, those are our friends. Yeah, well, that's not altogether clear, is it? And uh, a severe reason for doubt. Now, so can we talk about these excuses here? First of all, on the mistaken identity. Um, we talked about how you put up a five by eight flag just because you're near a war zone, so you put up a flag. But then I think he said too that once the attack started, you put up a much bigger American flag. Isn't that right? A 13 by seven or something? Yeah, like that? after, uh, in hindsight, I think it was a lull between the air attack and the torpedo attack. <laughs> we noticed that the, uh, the steaming ensign had been shot down, so Frank Brown and I got the largest flag we had on board, Holiday Colors, and hauled that up, and that was, uh, that was flying throughout the uh, torpedo boat attack. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, uh, and that's 13 by 7, I get that right, or something like that? Something like that. Yeah. I don't yeah. know exactly the, the dimensions. That's a big flag. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, three plywoods across is 12 feet, so people picture that. That's yep. 13 feet pretty wide. Um, okay, so, and then as you said before, the color of the ship, the silhouette of the ship, all these pilots should be absolutely trained, what every, uh, every different Navy's boats look like anyway. You said the writing on the back, Liberty, would have been unmistakable as any other Navy's ship. Is that correct? That's right. Yes. But they, they claim that they mistook us for a 40-year-old, black-hulled, rusted-out Egyptian tramp steamer that was chained to a pier in Alexandria. Yeah, Which they knew good and well what was chained to what pier in Alexandria at the time. <laughs> you know, like, we even have to mention that, like, they were confused about where all Egypt's boats were at the moment. Um, okay, um, and now, so, in terms of, well, look, I mean, we already know, right, because you guys have all heard the audio, too, like, we can't really translate from Hebrew, but you have the translations on the screen there of the pilot saying, this is the fighter pilots, I guess they weren't briefed on who they were attacking, right? They were, the surveillance planes had gathered the intel, but the pilot seemed surprised and says, sir, this is an American ship. And sir says, you heard me hit it. Yes. Follow your orders and hit it. So there's just, that's it. There ain't no point in trying to tell that lie anymore. No. That's not an accident. It no, just couldn't possibly be. Of course, the question in my mind is, uh, where's the rest of the tapes? Right. Why did you just release that? Why did you, you know, to hear the, uh, uh, the Israeli people, their, their uh, proponents, talk about the three segments that have, of tape that have been... Uh, Recorded, that's about 23 minutes in total. You're trying to tell me that uh, NSA people or whoever was monitoring the uh, the traffic would switch off their recording machines after a few minutes and then turn them back on, then turn them off, and then turn them back on again. No way, not in the middle of a battle like that. Mm -hmm. But then didn't you guys tell me too that the, was it, who was it at NSA was ordered to destroy all of this stuff, right? Isn't that right? What, what was the question? Somebody was somebody at NSA was ordered to destroy all the recordings and records of yes. this, but then he was it. Phil was telling the story last night that they went ahead and found a loophole and made it training material and put the transcripts in the training material was the only way some of this survived at all. Isn't that right? Mm -hmm. I haven't heard that. 
Yeah. Well, I I'm thought that was the story Phil was telling last okay. night. I guess. Yeah, I, I wasn't aware of that, and I know uh, the, the the NSA made a a report in 1980, supposedly the the classified true story of uh, what happened on the USS Liberty, mm -hmm. and I I had a copy of that report because I was still you know cleared for for those mm -hmm. and um, the the report never never talked about the purpose you know what why Israel attacked or anything like that it was mainly concentrating on the fact that we did not receive a a communication from the Pentagon that uh, was supposed to move us a hundred nautical miles off the coast but the uh, the problem with that is, you know, we needed line of sight communications. You know, we had to be in at that 13 and a half, 14 mile, mm -hmm. you know, uh, range so that we could get the the ground comms and uh, you know line of sight communications. Mm -hmm. Hey y'all, they've got great deals on weed at thehempspot.com. The Hemp Spot specializes in Delta-8 tetrahydrocannabinol instead of Delta-9, so they can send it straight to you anywhere in America. Recently, a friend moved and didn't have a guy in his new town, but then he heard about thehempspot.com on my show and was saved, figuratively and literally, because if you use the promo code SCOTT, you get 15% off every order and free shipping on any order over $100. Legal jams, bud, gummies, and the rest in your state. TheHempSpot.com. Spell V-T-H-C. You guys, my friend Mike Swanson has written such a great revisionist take on the early history of the post-World War II national security state and military-industrial complex in the Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy years. It's called The War State. I have to say, it's the most convincing case I've read that Kennedy had truly decided to end the Cold War before he was killed. In any case, I know you'll love it. The War State by Mike Swanson. Some of y'all have a problem. You've got chickens, but you don't want to stand around throwing food at them all day because of all the important stuff you have to do. Well, the solution to that is to get the Free Range Feeder from FreeRangeFeeder.com. The Free Range Feeder has been developed to satisfy the needs of the poultry, chicken hobbyist, and the homesteader. The convertible design allows for four different mounting methods. Go to FreeRangeFeeder.com Scott or use promo code Scott to get 15% off and get the free ebook. Subscribe to their newsletter to immediately receive your free copy of Getting Started with Backyard Chickens. That's freerangefeeder.com slash Scott. And then, and plus, I mean, did, in your experience, did that ever happen that the Pentagon told you to sail somewhere, but that the message accidentally went to the Philippines instead of to you? Accidentally. And that does sound like a catch-22 type scenario. I could believe that. Like in any other circumstance, I might buy that. That an order went to Antarctica and it was supposed to go to the Eastern Med. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, you would think because of the type of communications that we had, the direct link that we had between the ship and National Security Agency, that um, we should have been able to get that you know, direct. Yeah. Uh, you could hear everything else they were telling you. Right, right. right. 
Trump. This is the one order that they're essentially, in other words, they're lying right. and making this up after the fact that, yeah. oh, we told them to move 100 miles away and they didn't. Yeah. But when there's no actual evidence that that ever happened at no. all, right? No, there's, there's no right. evidence to show that that message ever got transmitted to the USS Liberty. Um, How about to anybody else? Did they get it in the Philippines? Hey, Liberty, move away from the from the Egyptian shore. They got it in Morocco, and they got it in the Philippines, and the, and the Sixth Fleet got it. That's I mean, that's why their ships. Oh, but were, you're saying there is evidence that the order went out. Oh yeah, yeah. There's, okay. there's evidence that the order went out, but we were supposed to be under the umbrella of the Sixth Fleet for comms during. Um, during that. So are you saying it is a possibility then that the Sixth Fleet was supposed to relay this order to you guys and they just never did or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, this story is a mind blower, man. I know it is. I'll say again, I'm, I'm really thrilled that Jocko had you guys on. I think this is really going to make a difference yeah. in moving the ball forward on this. Because, you know... Like, even if it was the Joe Rogan show, which he has a much bigger audience overall, but Jocko's got every Navy base on the planet is going to yeah. listen to that interview. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like, there's going to be captains and admirals and ensigns yeah. and everybody are going to be hearing this thing on all seven seas. Yeah. You know, all around the world. And, and that's, he asked... What would be a win-win, you know, if as a result of the interview yesterday? Yeah. And, you know, what we were hoping for is his listeners to um, do a letter campaign to their legislators, mm -hmm. you know, trying to get trying to get a uh, USS Liberty Remembrance Day. Part of what our goal has been for the Liberty Veterans Association is to get recognition for our 34 fallen shipmates. Um, and well, if only you would just accept the lie that it was a big accident, you could probably get your memorial, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but if it was, you know, an accident, why would it be the most decorated ship in the U.S. Navy since World War II for a single engagement. Mm -hmm. um, there's, you know, the Congressional Medal of Honor, the Bronze Stars, the Silver Stars, the uh, the 208 Purple Hearts, the uh, Combat Action Ribbon, the mm -hmm. Presidential Unit Citation, mm -hmm. and Navy Commendation Medals. Um, I mean, it was individual recognitions, but they were all done in private. There was, you know, and that's uh, that's another thing that, you know, when you get a an award, um, but it's a secret. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They uh, mine was given to me at uh, Captain Burns' office over in Bremerhaven, Germany. And he, uh, he told us when, when we got in there to, uh, you know, that there wasn't going to be any, any photographs, no, uh, no public recognition of the award. You know, we were authorized to wear it, but uh, we still couldn't talk about it. Yeah. 
and that's, that's the, the cover-up is just I mean did you guys get awarded something yeah, Purple Heart yeah Purple Heart and a presidential citation and combat action ribbon mm-hmm. yeah but Here's here's your reward, but nobody's allowed to know yeah. about it. Mm-hmm. Ain't yeah. not allowed to talk about it. Yeah, the so, only the only people that are, uh, sailing around in the Met at the time with the Purple Heart with no Vietnam medal. Yeah. Huh. So now I'm interested in. Um, well, there's so many different angles here, but uh, before we talk about uh, Dean Rusk and Admiral Moore and all of these guys, you know, taking it outside, which I think is is really important. Um, I guess I wanted to uh, ask about the uh, a few of the different excuses that the Israelis have put forward. There was just the mistaken identity, as we talked about. It was they thought it was an Egyptian trawler, but they had said something about someone had been shelling their beach that morning, and they thought yes. it was you. But yeah. you guys, your ship was only armed with you said fifty caliber machine guns, and that was it, right? right? Yeah. So that just did not happen at all because you would have known if there was any other ship in the neighborhood. Right. So that was just totally made up out of whole cloth, right? right. Exactly. Yep. Um, and then, what was it you said in 1980? Oh, this was the, the second excuse that they came up with was that they had warned, they tried to warn you to be 100 miles, uh, to move yep. 100 miles away. Yep. But that, at, at that point, they're admitting that they knew it was an American ship, but they're just saying tough luck because you were in the wrong spot and you shouldn't have been? Well, they knew earlier that day on June 8th, they actually had us plotted on their, in their war room, on their, on their map, as a, as a friendly ship. Um, and later that morning, they had a change of, you know, watch, and... What I understand happened was that they removed the the pin from the the board, thinking that well, we were would have moved off off the area, out of the area, um, but they they absolutely knew that it was the USS Liberty that we were an intelligence ship, um, and and the the torpedo boats when they. Uh, when they got us on radar, another part of an excuse on their part said that they were um, that we were steaming at like 35 knots, uh, and in their mind that that made us a warship. Uh, we we couldn't do over 17 or 18 knots with uh, without every boat in the you know the ship rattling. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was it was another fabrication, another lie uh, that they came up with, trying to uh, justify the attack. Plus, their torpedo boats had a maximum speed of twenty-seven knots. So, how did if we were going thirty-five knots, how did they catch up to us? Right. Yeah. yeah. They refute themselves just mm-hmm. right there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Were there, is there much other spin, or they mostly just ignore the story and just hope it goes away, or did they come up with any other excuses? Yeah, in 1982, after the publication of Jim Ennis' book, Assault on the Liberty, mm-hmm. the uh, Israeli Defense Forces History Department uh, did a complete review of all of the uh, documents available for the attack. Mm-hmm. And they claim now that uh, the reason they attacked 
was that uh, we weren't displaying the proper uh, Israeli markings to indicate that we were uh, an, an Israeli ship. So, an Israeli ship? Yeah. So they were uh, cleared to attack. Now that would put every ship in the area under the threat. So they, they That's so funny. You know, I, I swear, when you said that to me yesterday, I thought you just misspoke and I let it go. But then you just said it again and you meant what you're saying. That's what they're saying. Yes. Is, well, they weren't flying an Israeli flag. So it was open season on our allies, the Americans. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Boy, they sure scraping the bottom of the barrel of excuses there, huh? Oh, yeah. And I've been trying to find the email address of somebody in the IDF history department to uh, pursue that with them, but I can't do it. <laughs> That's just incredible. Okay, now, the Secretary of State, Dean Rusk, is a real hawk. He's with you guys on this. Yeah. And yeah. same for who all else? The Admiral Thomas Mortar, he was the head of CIA at the time, is that correct? The DCI? Moore was, uh, at the time, Chief of Naval Operations. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah after the attack. He is the only uh, U.S. Navy Admiral that's ever been the uh, commander of the 6th uh, Fleet and the 5th Fleet. I see. Um, and then, so who else in the prominent positions in the Johnson government has come out and been honest about this? All of the intelligence uh, chiefs come out and supported us. All of them? All of yeah, them. Yeah, Every yeah, one of them. them. The director of NSA, uh, Carter, uh, said that it, there was no way that it could be anything but a deliberate attack. Um, and who was the DCI at that time? I don't uh, know. I don't, I don't know. I have to go back. I forgot to. Yeah. Um, There's certainly something to see in that documentary, Dean Rusk. Saying, I never believe these excuses at all. And you could tell he's upset about it, too. Because yeah. it's his responsibility in a way, right? He's the Secretary yeah. of State at the time. Yeah. Of course, McNamara, he's been on camera saying he doesn't even remember the incident. Is that right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Is that in the Fog of War? Does he ask him about mm. it in the Fog of War? Mm, I else. don't know. Yeah. I bet he didn't even ask him about it in the Fog of War. He says he doesn't even remember it no, happening at all. It. No. That one time that the Israelis almost sank one of his ships when he was the Secretary of Defense. Slipped my mind. What were we talking about again? I don't remember. That happens to me too, you know? I understand, Bob. Oh, man. Okay, so um, I know you need to get going here, Larry. So let's wrap this up with the work that you guys are doing now your friends, Phil Turney and Ron Kugel, the rest of your group, and all the work you're doing with Congress, the different organizations. You say, uh, you guys told me last night you have um, a section at a museum in Wisconsin somewhere yeah, or something like Frank, that. Frank Let's hear about all of this stuff, that, all the good news that about the ball being moved forward. In fact, look, the reason that we're having this conversation right now here in San Diego is because I'm here and you guys are here to do interviews with Jocko Willink who y'all sat down with and talked to yesterday, which that to me is just huge event itself. That interview is sure to get such traffic and among members of the US military. So I'm extremely excited to find out about the reverberations from that. So go ahead and talk about that, the interview with Jocko, how that went, talk about the organization, y'all's P.O. box and website and whatever, wherever people can contact you, whatever they can do to help you, your letter writing campaign to Congress that you're doing, all these things. Letter rip. 
<laughs> okay, well, uh, y'all flip a coin. Who goes first? <laughs> the um, the letter writing campaign that you're talking about is a is an attempt on our part to get uh, the establishment of June 8th as the USS Liberty Remembrance Day. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't doesn't cost anything for Congress to do that. Um, it's just making that date annually the uh, remember the USS Liberty um, and in my mind and I think in the rest of the Liberty Veterans Association crew members minds that will start to show you know a little more recognition for the 34 men who lost their lives Um, and you know, we're not going to get a congressional investigation. I mean, it's been 55 years. They've uh, they've already said that there's been congressional investigations, and there haven't been. Um, but well, let us make up another lie and throw right. it away. You know. Right. So, um, but yeah, you know that makes me wonder about the dads of the boys that died there too. We're talking about all these young men. Um, all this time, like there must have been, obviously they had all grown old and died by now, but um, have they been part of this? The parents of some of the slain here, have been? Have they been working with you guys at all on this? Yeah, some of, some of the uh, family members have actually come to our reunions um, to express their, you know, pleasure in, in what the Liberty Veterans Association is trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, Joe's the curator of, of one of our websites that, uh, you know, I mean, we've got a, a webmaster that actually takes care of it, mm-hmm. but, uh, but Joe's, you know, one of the major contributors to that to make sure he's got the right information in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll let Joe talk about that, but it's, you know, what, what we're hoping for is to have the listeners contact their legislators and and say, hey, look, at here's the USS Liberty that was, you know, attacked back in 1967, and uh, nothing has been, been done publicly for, uh, for the crew, um, and, and that's what we're looking for. Yeah, we've got three websites. One, USSLibertyVeterans.org, which is the master uh, website. Then we have USSLibertyVeterans.blog, which is my uh, admittedly uh, not very well updated attempt to spread the the word about the USS Liberty mm-hmm. in various articles that I write. But And we also have USSLibertyDocuments.info, which is is it's a, supposed to be an archive of all the documents available about the uh, about wow. the USS Liberty? It's it's by definition it's it's constantly in 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 a state of flux. I'm sure, yeah. But if you go to the USS Liberty Veterans blog, one of the tabs on there is I forget exactly the wording, but uh, is, is if you want to help us, mm-hmm. and you go to that tab and you have four letters that you can send and all it, all it is is one of these things where you just fill in your ad name and address and all that stuff and hit a button and it'll send a letter to your members of congress 
One right. asks for the you to ask the your congressional delegation for a copy of the U.S. government's investigation or the congressional investigation of the attack. Uh-huh. All the people that have sent that letter and nobody has ever gotten a response. Yeah. Another one asks for the members of Congress to contact the Congressional Research Service and ask them if the U.S. government has ever investigated the attack on the USS Liberty. Of all the ones that I've sent and, and others have sent in too, only one congressman actually submitted that to the Congressional Research Service. Mm-hmm. Now you can't, you, as a civilian, you can't send a, a, a request to the Congressional Research Service. It has to go through a member of Congress. I see. And the Congressional Research Service in effect said no, there has been no congressional investigation, no U.S. government investigation of the attack on the Liberty. And there's another letter that asks for members of Congress to accept USS Liberty survivors' uh, bullets or points in, in their responses to their constituents who write about the USS Liberty in the past and continuing to today, to today, the members of Congress use bullets or, or uh, points provided by Israeli partisans. They refuse to use facts submitted to them by uh, survivors of the USS Liberty. And even if we contact them regarding that, they just ignore our letters. Yeah. Well, now, so... I know a lot of people, you know, are pretty cynical about the use of democratic politics to achieve any little d. I mean, um, and I am too. They're pretty cynical about that. However, if there is a time to write letters to congressmen, it's when you know a lot of other people are doing the same thing at the same time. That it's not just some one-off that ends up in the trash, but some staffer, maybe 435 staffers, have to say to 435 congressmen, sir, we keep getting these letters about the USS Liberty and it doesn't stop, they keep asking. And we got 10 of them today and we got 20 of them yesterday and they keep coming. That's when the difference gets made. And so now is really the time and, you know, I've got a, I'm proud of the size of my audience for what it is, but with you guys doing the Jocko Willink show, and the amount of attention that that is going to bring to this. I mean, if just a small part of my audience took advantage of the opportunity to know that a very small part of Jocko's audience are also going to be participating in this at the same time, now you're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters at a minimum here. And that does make the difference. And I know just from doing this show and talking to people who work on Capitol Hill or who are like activists trying to lobby on Capitol Hill, that it does make a difference. Phone calls and letters, they do. It's just a marginal difference, but a yep. lot of times the margin is what it takes, yep. right? You have all these congressmen, they pay all this lip service all day long to our heroic service members. Well, here's some who deserve some attention. And then the only contrary argument is, yeah, but a foreign state that's responsible for their pain won't like it. Yeah, well, out of 435, maybe we can find one or two who aren't going to care so much about that and will, in fact, care about you more. You know, it's absolutely worth a try to do. I'm going to click those buttons and send those letters. I hope people will do that. And 
Good. Let's create that scene in those congressional offices. Sir, these things keep coming in the email. They just won't quit. And maybe we need to do something about this and just let's at least put them in the position of having to discuss it among themselves that this is a, a part of reality. How many of these congressmen have ever even heard of this in their lives? Right. Like, how many of them are going to have to do research to even find out that they're not allowed to talk about this and that they better shut up? They might not even understand that they're not allowed to talk about it until they've been talking about it for a week and a half and someone finally comes to shush them, right? We don't know. Right. So worth a shot. That's yeah. my rant. I'm, I'm so happy you guys are doing this. Um, and one, I'm one, so one, grateful one, for one, Jocko having you all on too. One counter to the claim that it's happened 54 years ago, how, no, how can the, uh, what can an investigation do now? Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a federal crime to commit war crimes. It's also a federal crime to be an accessory after the fact. So members of Congress, people in the DOD are in a position to investigate the war crimes committed during the attack on the USS Liberty. And there were war crimes committed during the attack on the USS Liberty. Their refusal to do that makes them accessories after the fact of committing war crimes. They do that today not 54 years ago. They've been, they've been doing that today. They probably will get a letter from somebody and they will refuse to initiate an investigation today. That makes them accessories after the fact. Yeah. No which might be a reason. On which, that. No, which probably plays into the reason that they don't want to investigate it because right. they will be held accountable yeah. for their actions or their inactions. Well, they should know that the Department of Justice would never hold them accountable in any way, and they might as well just tell the truth, so at least we have that. In 2005, we submitted a war crimes report to the Department of the Army, which is the proper uh, vehicle to submit those reports. Mm-hmm. And we outlined, you know, just get a prima facie case of, of the war crimes that were committed. They're obligated under the DOD Law of War Program to investigate all allegations of the, of the violations of the laws of war, whether committed by or against the United States. Right. They waived that, uh, of that requirement under the DOD. I sent a copy of that DOD, uh, the war crimes report that we prepared. I sent that to the federal prosecutor in Houston. Silence. Not one word, not an acknowledgement that they received it at all. Yeah. It's kind of fun to imagine the scene in the office when they get that. What do we do with this? Yeah. Boy, it's so thorough and well done, and yet we don't want to touch it. It's radioactive, so, you know, at least you're putting them through a little bit of stress, Joe, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. All right, listen, we better wrap this up because okay. you've got to get to the airport. Yeah. Larry Bowen. And Joe Matters, thank you both so much for doing this interview and for for all your hard work on this. It's so important, and and I'm happy to, whatever little small part I can play in help bringing y'all's story to others' attention. So really appreciate you. Thank you both very much for doing this. Just advertise their websites and uh, and Jocko's. uh, Absolutely. We'll have all the links in the show notes at scotthorton.org when we post this up. All right. Thank you both again. Thank Thank you. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, APSRadio.com, Antiwar.com, ScottHorton.org, and LibertarianInstitute.org.